All aboard the History Express. My name is Donnie Hazel, and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. We hope you enjoy this episode of the History Express podcast. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. D-Day, the largest, most ambitious invasion in the history of warfare. 200,000 soldiers, 11,000 ships. The Allies could settle for nothing less than victory, whatever the cost. But it was the soldiers who landed at Omaha Beach who paid the highest price. It's the only place in the world where you can walk in the footsteps of the very brave. Normandy, northern France. This six-mile stretch of sandy beach is where the liberation of Europe from Nazi occupation began. On the 6th of June, 1944, this was the scene of one of the bloodiest and most desperate battles of the 20th century. Many of the young soldiers who fought there had never been in combat before. It's a story of immense courage against the odds, a moment in history that inspired Steven Spielberg's film Saving Private Ryan. An awful lot of our very best young men made the ultimate sacrifice, gave up their lives for your freedom and mine on D-Day at Omaha Beach. The Normandy countryside has changed little since the war. The battlefields remain undisturbed. The beaches are tucked out of the way down narrow country roads. Let me tell you how to do it. You drive in off of the N-17 into the cemetery and turn right at your first opportunity and you'll find a little parking lot there and you park there and you go straight down to the beach. In the process, you're going to go by the engineering monument that was put up, I don't know, about 10 years ago. And then you're going by a German bunker. And this bunker had a 75-millimeter cannon in it. You can crawl in. You stand there in that German fortification and you're looking down six miles of golden sand. It's the best view of Omaha Beach that I can imagine. And of course you're filled with all kind of emotions because nobody can go there to have some idea of what happened here. For visitors to this part of France, it is impossible to escape the past when you see the faded grandeur of the old coastal towns. The countryside in Normandy may not have changed much since the war, but the political landscape certainly has. In 1944, mainland Europe was under Hitler's control. But the tide of war was beginning to turn. The Germans had been defeated at Stalingrad and the Eastern Front had collapsed as the Russians forced them back. In the West, the combined might of the Allied forces was massing in southern England, preparing to mount an invasion. 
U.S. Army General Dwight Eisenhower was appointed Supreme Commander of the Allied Forces. He masterminded the operation, a plan so complex it took 18 months to prepare. The build-up in England was so immense that if we got a toehold on the continent and could begin pouring in these men and supplies, we were going to win the war. But it was a touch-and-go thing. Hitler might very well have thrown the Allies back into the sea, and at Omaha Beach especially, he came that close to it. American troops began to arrive in England as early as 1942, many of them under 20 years of age and who had never experienced the horrors of war. It was these soldiers who were picked to lead the assault on June the 6th. My name is Richard Atkins. I was in Company D, 116th Infantry. John Robert Slaughter, call me Bob. I was in D Company, 116th Infantry Regiment of the 29th Division. Bob Slaughter left school at 16 to join the Army. Within two years, he was a sergeant in charge of a squad of nine men. David Silva, Company D, 1st Battalion. David Silva put his career as a priest on hold to join the National Guard at the age of 18. My name is Marvin Mabes. I was in the National Guard outfit of the 29th Division. Marvin Mabes was a semi-professional baseball player from Virginia when he joined the 29th Division. My name is Ernest Bogell, B-O-E-G-E-L. Californian Ernest Bogell was a shop assistant before the war. By D-Day, he was a second lieutenant. These were citizen soldiers. These were all kids that had never been in combat before. These were kids that were told by their briefers, look, about half of you are going to be dead before tomorrow's over. One guy from the 116th told me he heard that, and he said, I looked to my right, and I looked to my left, and I thought, you poor bastard. They were kids. They were 17. I know one, Bob Slaughter, was 17 years old. They were 18. They were 19 years old. Of course they were going to live forever. The Germans weren't going to get them. They were too young, too good-looking. Their mother loved them too much. June the 6th was the last day of their innocence, the onslaught that lay ahead would haunt the survivors for the rest of their lives. Machine gun bullets were everywhere. I never realized firepower could be that intensive. They were just targets. Machine gun bullets were everywhere. Nobody stops and helps nobody. I never realized. I know people were getting hit and dying right there in front of my eye. We were trained to get off that boat and go forward. They were just targets. We could hear people out there screaming and hollering and Nobody would go out and help them. They'd just lay, lay out there and scream until they die. Dwight Eisenhower had deliberately picked the 29th Division as one of the lead divisions on D-Day for exactly that reason. He didn't want veterans. A veteran infantryman is a terrified infantryman. He knows what heart shrapnel can do to a body. He knows what a bullet can do to a body. You want kids. You want 17, 18, and 19-year-olds who are out to conquer the world. They can do anything, kind of attitude. And that was the 116th Regiment and the 29th Division on D-Day. Many soldiers in the 116th Regiment had spent nearly two years training in Britain, preparing for the invasion. As D-Day grew closer, more and more troops arrived in the country. By June 1944, 
There were nearly two million North American troops living and training alongside British forces. You've always gone through the training, but you don't know what's going to really happen. There was a lot of fear. I think everyone had it a little bit. They weren't really prepared for the horrors of, of A, combat, and B, the kind of combat they, that they saw in Omaha, which was horrific beyond belief. There's no amount of training can, uh, can get you ready. It's, you learn on-the-job training, and I'll tell you, it's a tough way to learn. The region of Normandy is no stranger to conflict. It takes its name from the 10th century Norman Vikings who invaded and settled the area. William the Conqueror was born here, Joan of Arc was burnt at the stake here, and Richard the Lionheart built a fortress here. The landscape is littered with the remains of military architecture that can still be seen today. But some of what remains is very much part of 20th century history. In 1942, the Germans began building a massive coastal defense. By 1944, the so-called Atlantic Wall stretched 3,000 miles across northern Europe. 12,000 bunkers, 5 million mines, and 300 large-caliber guns. The Germans knew that the Allies were going to attempt a landing. They knew that around the summer of 1944, there was a strong likelihood that the Allies would try to get back onto mainland Europe. It was vital to keep the location of the landings a secret. The Allies went to great lengths to dupe German intelligence into thinking the invasion would be anywhere but Normandy. In fact, on the day itself, when it became clear that the Allied forces were massed off the coast of Normandy, the Germans, many of them, still thought that it was a feint and that the main thrust of the attack would come probably to the north in Calais, which is the shortest cross-channel Landing an invasion force of this size required a vast stretch of coastline. The Normandy beaches were divided into five codenamed zones. The British were to take Sword and Gold, the Canadians Juno, and the Americans Utah and Omaha. It was all meticulously planned, but still fraught with risk. I don't think I slept much that night, to tell you the truth. Everybody was kind of restless. Some of them wanted to uh, play gambling. You know, they liked to gamble, play uh, cards and that. I didn't play cards because I, I didn't know how to win. This was the largest amphibious operation ever planned in, in the history of warfare. It was hugely complicated, and it was inherently risky. And indeed, um, Eisenhower uh, put a note in, in his wallet uh, on the 5th of June, the day before the, the forces went in, uh, contemplating failure, and it was the speech that he would have broadcast in the event of failure, and it said something like, I'm sorry to have to report that the landings on the um, coast of France have failed, and I've ordered the withdrawal of the troops, and the responsibility is mine alone. He knew there was a possibility, maybe even a strong possibility, that this thing wasn't going to happen. We left at 2 a.m. from Weymouth, and we uh, weighed anchor about 12 miles from the French coast. And when we, uh, by the time we ate our breakfast and got ready to uh, 
to load into the landing craft was about four o'clock that morning. Then we begin going down on nets into the landing craft. Those craft held about 20, 25 people at one time. I suppose two of our squads could be in one boat. The landing craft were piloted by British naval officers. It was pretty rough, and some of the soldiers were obviously looking a bit green around the gills. I don't think they were comfortable at all. They were sat down in three rows, and they were still quiet and obviously wondering what lay ahead of them. I suppose in retrospect, I was scared, but I, I didn't feel scared. I was so intent on landing them at the right place at the right time that what was going on around me was ir irrelevant. I'd never been seasick in my life, and I'd given my puke bag away. And it was rough. I mean, those waves were seven feet high, and, and of course that flat boat, the front of it, would just plow into these mounds of water, and it's just like hitting a brick wall. And the water would just go up in the air and then blow right back on us and right into our laps. And I started getting seasick. And I mean, I really got seasick. And so I just uh, started vomiting into my helmet. And I'd throw it out and wash it out in the bottom of the boat and vomit. And it just, I think I, uh, all of my uh, breakfast and probably the next two, last two or three meals came up. The American troops have to travel further in their landing crafts than any other Allied force on D-Day. The reason lay six miles down the coast on top of a jagged cliff top called Pointe du Hoc. The Allies believed that on Pointe du Hoc there were 655 millimeter guns that not only could um, direct their fire on the beach, could, but could direct their fire out at sea and target the landing craft coming in. A ranger's battalion was ordered to go in and take out the guns, which they attempted with tremendous courage and great risk themselves. They fired rope ladders up the cliffs to the top of the uh, point with the rockets and then climbed up the rope ladders um, one by one to get to this um, battery. Unfortunately, Allied intelligence was forced. The guns had been withdrawn in April and May, um, and all that was there were telegraph poles, which um, uh, looked to, to the reconnaissance planes as if they were guns. If we'd known the guns had been moved from Pointe Hoc um, several months before, it made an enormous difference to the landing. The troops wouldn't have had this long run in. 12 miles in a bucking uh, landing craft on a miserable, gray, cold day. Now, the troops arrived at the shore in, in not a good condition. There's nothing that you can hear because the sound of the boat is quite of a roar and the, the waters are thundering around you and you know hitting the boat. You really didn't hear anything that's going on. You could hear uh, rockets if they were fired, like whoosh, coming from the large ships. As far as seeing ahead, you couldn't see much until you got within a mile. And I could see the coastline of France, and it was just a uh, looked like a giant sunrise. It was just red, you know, from the reflection. The clouds were low, of course, and it was cold, and wind was blowing. And I could see the pulsa the, you know, explosions pulsating on the beach, you know, and uh, 
to me, that was so exciting because it just looked like, well, gosh, we're going to walk across that beach, no problem, you know. And you could hear the planes flying over. And they were going, you know, to, to France, and they were going to you know, carpet bomb that beach area, and we were going to have a you know, picnic walking across. But what the soldiers in the landing craft did not know was that the night bombers had failed to hit even one target on the beach. The beach was flat. It should have been cratered with bombs from a, the night attack, but whatever happened, the beach was flat. The German defenses were intact, the waters and beach heavily mined. Three battalions of veteran Wehrmacht soldiers waited, backed by machine guns and artillery. They didn't know it, but the men of the 116th were walking into a killing zone. The troops had a picture in their mind of, of what they were going to see and, and face. And in Omaha, it was a treeless, rather bleak stretch of coastline, green-topped, sandy cliffs with four ravines cut into them by water draining from the shore itself onto the sea. In Omaha, it was always going to be difficult, largely because of the cliffs, which were higher there than at the other beaches. But it was an essential part of the operation because it was the last remaining beach that um, they could get the troops ashore. No military strategist would pick Omaha as a place to mount an offensive from the sea. It was too easy to defend. But the Allied planners had no choice. The distance between Utah Beach and the British at Gold Beach was too far. They had to make a landing between the two. Unfortunately for the men of the 116th and the other American divisions, Omaha was the only option available. If you approach Omaha Beach today and stare up at the steep, rocky bluffs that rise above the sands, it's easy to see just how isolated and exposed the young soldiers were to the German guns waiting to destroy them. Six thirty a.m. was codenamed H hour. Up and down the coastline, the Allied forces were landing. The British had sword and gold the Americans at Utah, and at Omaha, the Navy attempted to get the first wave of the American 116th Regiment ashore. Well, our intention was to put them on the beach, but it was a very shallow beach, and about 30 yards off the shore, we came to a crunching halt. We lowered the, the ramp, and they had to go out in single file. They were carrying an awful lot of kit. And they went out the middle row first, then the left row, then the right row, in single file. Every man jack in my boat was killed. As they advanced up the beach, the machine guns opened fire and killed everyone. This is thought to be the only surviving footage of that morning at Omaha Beach made all the more remarkable considering that 80% of the first wave of infantry were killed. But for the men in the second wave, the horror was only just beginning. But we lost six out of the 18 craft that we, we took in. And I think the later waves had the problems of the obstacles, the mines, and also the bodies floating around in the water of the first wave. About three or four hundred yards from shore, they opened up on us with artillery and, and, uh, and uh, mortars. 
Germans had zeroed in on these boats. And they, when the ramp went down, they were getting hit. Panic, I guess, went through their boat. And I could see that one of the landing craft to our right had already touched down and the ramp was down and, and boy, it was catching it off from both sides. You know, machine gun bullets were ricocheting off the sides and the front. Well, I just jumped over the side. I never did hit the bottom of the ocean. When I got down and down, I pushed a life preserver and it shot back up out of the water by like that. Machine gun bullets were everywhere, chipping in the water as we're coming in. And of course, you could hear the crack of the machine gun from which they were coming. Because those things, bullet comes first and then the crack comes after. You can't hide from it in no way because it's, those are, bullets are firing about 3,000 feet a second. First man off the boat went off the middle of the ramp and that thing was going up and down like this and a surge from the rear and it just crushed him, you know, hit him in the head while the first one off. And boy, that sent a chill up my spine. And, and everybody, instead of going off the middle of that thing, they started going off the edge and some going off the sides. And um, Bedlam prevailed for a while. People were, you know, jumping into water over their heads. And we had all this equipment. We had about 60 pounds of equipment, not including our weapons. And they couldn't swim. Some of them couldn't swim very well. And some were so, you know, small guys that. Uh, trying to carry those heavy guns and all. In my view, they carried too much kit for an assault force. They were soaking wet and very, some of them very seasick. When they got on the beach, they had to wade through the water and they were drenched and miserable, I would imagine, and they must have been disorganized, wet, and worried about what lay ahead of them. There I was out in the water, and I couldn't swim much. They started dog paddling. And when my feet started hitting the, the ocean bottom, I started squatting down and walking, keeping down as low as I could. Then I got on up in the water by like that, and I started running. Now I ran on up on the beach and hit the ground, got up and ran again two or three times. I don't think I'd gone more than uh maybe 20, 30 yards, and I was hit right in the calf of my leg, but I also was hit in the pack of my back, plus going through the canteen that I had on my hip, plus going down through, we wore these leggings that ran from ankle up to uh, just below your knee. It was the pack that saved my life, because if those bullets had gone, and I was flat like this, on my stomach, crawling in. I wasn't hit when I got on the beach. I was hit in the water. I would have probably died because the pack, back, backpack saved my life. I was fortunate because we could see all these bodies in the water who were floating, and obviously these people were already dead. I thought, well, I'd take those poor chaps to their grave. You know, that, that was one feeling that came to me, and I thought, well, what else could I do? I had to take them there. But it's worried me for years, you know, that I was responsible for their deaths in some ways. And that's lived with me ever since. 
In the first half an hour, it was, it was carnage, total carnage. It was a turkey shoot. I mean, they just swept to the beach, raked the beach with machine gun fire, and they could see the soldiers just dropping, going down like nine pins, one after another. After another. Um, and they thought initially that um, you know, they could just continue and wipe out the entire landing. Those that got to the beach huddled in little um, shell holes or, or behind whatever shelter they could find and were just stuck there. I mean, they, they had no idea of what they could do. I let the water drift me up to the edge and I was just lying there just trying to figure out when this man from the boat to our right ran across, was started running across the beach and he looked like he was having a hard time running because he was running in water up, you know, a runnel that looked like it was about six or eight inches deep. And he was uh, all loaded down with equipment. And uh, he stumbled out and I think he was shot and he fell, or, I'm, or he fell and then he was shot. But anyway, he fell in that water, in that runnel of water. And he was only about 20 yards away from me. And he was lying there screaming for, you know, for a medic, and, uh, and one of our medics went over to help him, and they shot the medic. And both of them lying out there screaming. And, uh, and I was laying there, and, you know, thinking about going across, and I, you know, it kind of uh, put a chill on my thinking. We were told not to stop and help people get, we wanted to get across that beach. I know people were getting hit and dying right there in front of my eyes. But we were trained to get off that boat and go forward. And that's what, what, what I tried to do. But nobody stops and helps nobody. Ain't no soldier I've known on the beach to help one another, except a medic, and that was his job. At 9 o'clock, the few American soldiers still alive on the beach were trapped. With the tide coming in behind and the Germans in front, it seemed hopeless. Well, what uh, turned the boys into men was getting off that landing craft, getting out of the water, and then crossing that beach. Normandy today is a popular place for tourists, eager to sample the delights of food and wine and the stunning scenery. It's also famous for its wide, sandy beaches. But many of these beaches are haunted by their terrible past. At Omaha, many of those who arrived on the morning of June the 6th, 1944, would never leave. Their final resting place, the American cemetery at Colville-sur-Mer. In the first six hours of the Omaha landing, a thousand men died. If a tourist goes to Omaha Beach during extreme low tide, and if he walks out to the edge of that water and looks back, he is going to be amazed. I don't see how anybody could possibly get across that beach. And that's the way it was on D-Day. It was 400 or 450 yards across there, four football fields that we had to run across with all that equipment, carrying our weapons. On the 6th of June, 1944, Omaha Beach offered no more shelter than can be seen today. Walking along the beach, you're going to see what are called shingles. There are stones about that big, and they're just scattered. 
oh, maybe five, ten yards in width, and they don't go up much more than a foot or so in height. But in 1944, those were a seawall on June 6th. And it was that seawall that the first wave of the 29th Division and the 1st Division gathered because there was some protection from the rifle fire coming down from the bluff. And men gathered, and they had been confused by the landings. They were all mixed up, and a lot of guys had been killed. So that the sergeant or the corporal or the lieutenant, they, he didn't know who the hell these guys to his right and left were. For a soldier in a, in a combat situation, doesn't have a wide appreciation of what's actually happening. You know, they don't know whether the landing is going well or poorly. All they know is the immediate surrounding. They're 20 feet or so around them. All a soldier could describe was noise, smoke, fear, and terrible, terrible confusion. see the more patterns you're getting closer and closer to where we were and I told my number one gunner that I was going across and for him to follow me and so I took off running as hard as I could go and uh, I was going as low as I could but I stumbled on till I got to the seawall nobody had a weapon that would fire uh, everybody's weapon was full of sand or water so I started uh, trying to clean my rifle, and I tried to light a cigarette, and I was shaking so bad I couldn't get it lit on We couldn't set up our machine guns because the fire was so hot. And one of the soldiers got up to look over the top just to see. He didn't get a chance to tell us anything. He went, put his head up, and he was shot. And I'm not sure if he was killed or just critically wounded, but uh, I think he was killed. I never realized firepower could be that intensive. They were firing out of pillboxes, they were protected, and they just had what we called enfilade fire. That's where you can go back and forth and just keep firing. As long as you got the ammunition, keep firing. And all the poor, poor invaders were all just uh, targets. They were just targets. By late morning, the invaders had barely fired a shot at the Germans. The infantrymen were alone on the beach, unsupported, their equipment drenched by seawater. Very little of the armor actually arrived on the beach. Because they had offloaded so far out, only, tr only five of the 32 swimming tanks actually arrived on the shore. 27 sank on the way in with the loss of all the crews. A young man from Chattanooga, Tennessee, he looked up at me, real pitiful look, and he said, Slaughter, are we going to get through all this? And I didn't know how to answer, because I thought we were all going to die out there. If you got hit, you, you were going to die, because there's nobody to take care of you. You know, you're just going to lay there and bleed, or you're going to lay there and, and go into shock, or, you know, whatever. And uh, we could hear people out there screaming and hollering, and you know, nobody would go out and help them. They would just lay, lay out there and scream until they died. We were just not able to do anything until around 3 o'clock, at least, in the afternoon. And it wasn't until then that we could really get up and move around and see things looking towards the cliff or looking out towards the water in the channel. And uh, it was about a matter of maybe between 7.30 and 3 o'clock that we were pinned down. We really learned what battle was like. 
things were going so badly on Omaha Beach, no progress was made at all. General Omar Bradley, who was um, at sea on one of the destroyers, the reports that he was getting from the beach led him to believe it was going to be an irreversible catastrophe. I wasn't real sure we were going to hang in there. Of course, I knew that the invasion would, would hold, but I didn't think Omaha, and I didn't think the 116th was going to hold. I thought we were going to get pushed back. And if they had attacked with the tanks, we would have been pushed back. The Germans' big mistake at Omaha Beach, they didn't get their tanks into action. The 88s and the mortars and the 75s and the men in the trenches up the whole bluff at Omaha Beach and the machine gunners, they all did their job. But they weren't backed up by tanks, and that was because nobody dared wake the Fuhrer. And the Fuhrer had kept control of the tanks in his own hands. Don't you put a tank in the battle until I say so. And Hitler was notorious for going to bed at 6 a.m., 7 a.m., and sleeping till noon. And he did that on June 6, and nobody dared wake him. So the German tanks that were in the area did not get into action. I've had Americans tell me, hell, if they'd have brought tanks in at 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock in the morning, they'd have swept us right back into the sea. General Bradley ordered Navy destroyers to sail close to the shore to offer support to the isolated troops. They pounded the German emplacements creating the diversion necessary for the foot soldiers to start fighting back. You can't kill everyone, and people slowly, very slowly, began to press forward. And a turning point came when General Dutch Kota, who was commanding um, the troops going ashore in Omaha, ordered a Bangalore torpedo to blow up a wire barricade, a rolled wire barricade, and made a hole in that. And Kota himself led the troops through. He ran through the gap, got through safely, and said, right, come on, follow me. And bit by bit, they started going through that gap. I was hit going across the beach. Of course, it wasn't very bad. I got a piece of shrapnel in my leg and a piece of shrapnel through my foot. We stayed there at the base of the cliffs for I don't know how long, but I know that a H company came by pretty soon, and so we got together and, and formed a, a machine gun. And my number one gunner was uh, was one of the best soldiers I've ever seen in my life. Uh, he was a middleweight wrestling champion of, of uh, Illinois. Weighed about 160 pounds and about 5'8", and he was, uh, he was a horse. And... Uh, and, and a tremendous soldier, and he, he, wanted, he wanted to get even with those Germans, and so they set that gun up almost out in the open, and he's fired into that, uh, one of the pillboxes just over to our right, and we could see it firing 88s down the beach. To a man, they figured out, if I stay here, I'm gonna get killed. I can't retreat. I'm gonna take some Germans with me. And they would start out and they would say, you just, I mean, would, the noise was just horrific. They would yell, hey, I'm going, who's coming with me? Hey, I'm going, and then up they'd get, and over here two guys would get up, they'd come to the same conclusion. And over there three more, and pretty soon a wave of them going up. And you can stand there on that shingle today and look at that bluff going up in front of you, damn near vertical, and you can hear it. You can see them. 
and you can see the German defender. It doesn't take much imagination. I want to go home. And the only way I could go home was to win the war. So we had to win that war to, to go home. That's why we did it. We didn't know whether we were going to run into a pillbox up there, run into a squad of Germans in a trench or something. We didn't know. We didn't know whether we were going to run over a walk over a, a mine or not. We just had to, you know, that's the only option we had is go. And that's what we did. Allied planners had expected the Americans to have secured the beach by 8.30 AM on the morning of D-Day. In fact, they only achieved this objective 12 hours later, leaving behind them a scarred and bloody battlefield. If you were up at the top at the end of the day, what you saw was dead bodies. Uh, bodies without a leg, bodies without an arm, bodies without a head, bodies in, been cut in half, just cut in half. And one half was over here and the other half was over there. You saw all the debris of war. Some guys that had tried to bring in a guitar with them. Of course, rifles laying all over the place and web belts laying all over the place and jerry cans carrying gasoline and guys who had been bringing in landmines and there's the mine is blown out of his hand. And you would see some uh, dead men with a book in front of them. One of them was a tree grows in Brooklyn. The guy was dying, and he pulled the tree grows in Brooklyn out of his haversack, and he was reading it as he died. They were tired, was, was coming in, and uh, it was bringing in bodies, and then when it went out again, it just, hundreds of them, you know, just uh, rolling in the surf. And it was a pretty sad sight to see all those bodies and all that equipment Tanks, you know, on fire. We had, I saw two, two tanks, both burning. Saw an LCT with its ramp down. It was on fire. So, uh, men rolling in the surf, uh, all kinds of gas masks and salt jackets and all kinds of equipment rolling in the surf with the dead bodies. It was a mess. It, it was a terrible thing to have to witness the devastation and the uh, death that happened. And it seemed that most of them were, I don't know, there weren't too many that just simply were wounded when they were in the water. They probably died from drowning if they couldn't help themselves because there was nobody to help them at that time. Omaha Beach means to me death to, to a lot of good men. It was... Um, it was a, uh, a terrible obstacle that we had to overcome to win the war, World War II. The scars of battle are still visible today on the bluffs of Omaha Beach, and they are left there lest we forget the sacrifice made so willingly by so many. 9,000 US soldiers died in action during the Allied invasion of Normandy. They lie in the American cemetery at Colville-sur-Mer, just above Omaha Beach. You want to meet heroes from D-Day? You go to the cemetery. Everybody else was there. Everybody else did his duty to the best of his ability. You want to meet heroes, you go to the cemetery. 
That's where the heroes are. We live in freedom, and we don't have to worry about people telling us what we can do and what we can't do, and it's because of those men lying under those crosses and stars. They laid it all on the line, and uh, they, they, uh, they won the war. They did. The 116th took the highest casualties of any regiment on D-Day, and they got up to the bluff at Verville. Omaha Beach uh, took its toll on the 116th, and we never recovered. My uh, platoon leader was killed, and my squad leader was killed, my section sergeant were killed, some of the gunners. June the 7th, we were very much crippled. All of our most of our officers were gone, especially the 1st Battalion. All four company commanders were killed. Uh, three of them killed on the beach, and one was uh, died later of his wounds. 2,500 men died in the D-Day landings. It is estimated that 80% of those casualties were from Omaha Beach, although a precise figure has never been established. I've always been proud of what we did. Not only of me, but of all my friends. I'm proud of every one of them. They're, they're survivors. Uh, they went through hell, and uh, they've uh, prevailed. 24 hours after D-Day, the scene at Omaha Beach looked very different. For the Allies, it was a strategic landing place for the ships carrying more troops and supplies to support the bitterly fought invasion. For the men who followed the landing forces, the reality of what happened two days before was hard to accept. Ernest Bogel was a replacement officer for the 116th Infantry. We'd been warned, real bluntly, there were an awful lot of casualties, especially amongst their officers. To me, the beach looked very peaceful at that time, except that something had happened there. But as I was walking towards shore, I spotted a body still floating there. And up to then, it was like a lark to me to see what, uh, you know, we had been, like, the fellows I talked with and that, it was like they were going on a picnic, see, on that. But that kind of struck me here, right? It was just a young fellow who, and I got a kind of a realistic picture there of what, uh, must have happened that day. Omaha was only the start. The battle raged in the countryside of Normandy, where the soldiers fought for one field at a time. Colonel Canham had addressed us and told us that we'd be in charge of men who had survived the D-Day landing, and that we would had to be a little helpful in the way we handled them not be, not expect too much 
from them because actually they're still in a state of shock from what they experienced that day. For the survivors of the 116th, the war went on in a series of desperate battles as the Allies slowly drove the Germans back. I run across a field which was all torn up, obviously by heavy artillery hitting uh, all these trees and everything. But I'm telling you, there must have been 300 dead Germans there. Limbs missing and all this stuff. And their faces was showing the, knowing that the artillery was gonna land on them in a few moments, or just a moment later, their face would reflect the terror in uh, their eyes as the last thing that they did. They'd be in all these positions. And uh, that was the thing that I remembered most about being in Normandy. Normandy has been immortalized by D-Day. The landscape is still littered with remnants of the war. Ironically, perhaps, Omaha itself is now the quietest of the beaches, but the landscape still echoes with the memories of what happened over 50 years ago. to Omaha, I looked out at sea and trying to imagine us coming in. And it was then, really, it came back to me the thought that I landed these chaps there all that time ago, and they all perished there. D Company is close to my heart, and to all those people, and D Company lost their lives, and I, I love them, and I'll never forget them. Thank you for listening to this episode of the History Express podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, then please look in the show description notes for a link that will allow you to help support the podcast. Thank you very much for listening, and until next time, have a great day.